This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Take this bath or use this face mask or this and that. It's all about kind of treating the symptoms instead of the root causes of why you feel so stressed out. Maybe it's because you don't get help at home. Maybe it's because, again, your boss gives you too much work. But instead, we're telling everyone to sort of pacify themselves with, I don't know, some wellness app or something that they can buy. And it's like gaslighting women. If you think that you're stressed out because you're not doing enough yoga, you're kidding yourself. That's not the reason why. And so, so much of this messaging within this industry is so problematic. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Wellness Fact versus Fiction. And this week, we are with the incredible Rena Raphael, who is a journalist who specializes in health, wellness, tech, and women's issues. She covered the wellness industry for Fast Company Magazine and has also written for the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, CBS, NBC News, and Men's Health, among many other publications. Her wellness industry newsletter, Well To Do, covers trends and news and offers a market analysis. Raphael has spoken on the wellness industry at national conferences such as the Global Wellness Summit and the Fast Company Innovation Festival. Previously, she served as a senior producer and lifestyle editor at Today.com and NBCNews.com. Rena is amazing. Her new book, The Gospel of Wellness, Gyms, Gurus, Goop, and the False Promise of Self-Care is something that I think will really resonate with everyone here listening because Rena and I share so much in common about deciphering fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. And I'm so thrilled to have her here today. So Rena, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. So. Let's just start off with, first of all, how did you get into this? And I know that you have a really interesting story and one that I think a lot of our listeners are going to relate with about how you got interested in wellness and kind of what your journey's been throughout 
the wellness industry as a journalist? Yeah. So I, like many women, was a wellness addict. I went to every boutique fitness class. I tried out every new trend. I had a pantry stocked with natural wine and kombucha. I swallowed all the supplements. Anything that came out that was touted in a woman's magazine, I tried. And I really loved it for a while. And the reason that I was so into it was because here was an industry that promised solutions to problems that I had. You aren't sleeping well? Take this gummy. You feel sluggish? Try this supplement. It's too hard to corral all your friends for dinner? Go to a boutique gym. You'll see people right there. Any issue you had, there was a promised solution. So eventually what ended up happening is that because I was so into this culture and it became a predominant culture starting around 2014, my pitches for the magazine I worked for started to represent my metamorphosis. So sometime around 2017, I started covering this industry full time. I became a wellness industry reporter, and that means that I had access to everyone. I interviewed everyone from Bulletproof CEO Dave Asprey to Gwyneth Paltrow to the founders of meditation apps, you name it, I got access. And over the years, I started realizing two things. One, a lot of the stuff that I was into wasn't making me better. It was making me paranoid. I was nervous about shower gels in hotels. I was nervous about quote unquote chemicals, not even really understanding what that means. I started getting disordered eating. I was obsessed with working out. It started to feel more like work and a burden than anything that was actually improving my life. And then on the other hand, when I had access to all of these marketing plans and to the insight of these founders, I realized that a lot of what we call wellness is just there to make a buck. There isn't any or very little scientific evidence vouching for these treatments or tools or some self-care product. And so the two of those combined essentially kind of started an awakening where I had to realize that the wellness industry is unwell. That is my favorite quote. I I always actually say wellness is unwell. I really do feel like we share a brain because that is my favorite phrase. And I think that everything you just described is so relatable for everyone listening. So a big theme of my podcast is how we talk about how it's very easy to get pulled into wellness trends. And as a physician who, you know, practices evidence-based medicine and I am evaluating different scientific literature and appraising and critically evaluating scientific evidence, I still, if something's out of my specialty or expertise, I have fallen into plenty of things that I can't tell if they're back first fiction in, for example, in the skincare space or, you know, various different things. And we're all susceptible to it. And so I think everything you're saying is so relatable to everyone listening. Because at the end of the day, we're all just looking for health and not to use the word, but we're all looking for wellness to just be well, both emotionally, physically. And so it is an industry that draws everyone in and it can get so, so, so confusing. And so when you had this change, actually, I find it really interesting. I actually kind of went through something similar. So I used to be a bit more dogmatic about my dietary nutrition approach. So I'm vegan for 13 years and I'm still vegan. I'll be vegan forever. But I used to be like more myopic with my view on nutrition science. And now obviously the further I grew in my scientific training and scientific career and my ability to understand and critically evaluate nutrition science, I realized that 
leaders in the plant-based world that were saying that, you know, plant-based diets cure everything and they can reverse heart disease and all these things. As I started to really look and evaluate the literature, I realized, wait a second, that's not based on a rigorous study. And that's not what the evidence shows. Plant-based diets are certainly healthful, well-planned ones, and they're part of our guidelines and our recent clinical practice statement that we share. But so are Mediterranean diets and well-planned diets with, you know, lots of plants, but also some animal products. And so I had my own kind of shift in when I realized, okay, wait, let me learn how to critically evaluate this scientific evidence. And I shifted as well. And it's kind of interesting when you have that moment where you're like, wait a second, what else have I been wrong about? And I think that it's made me realize that, you know, science is continuously changing. And unfortunately, the wellness industry doesn't follow the scientific evidence. So your book takes on commodified wellness. And so right. how is that different from what you call real wellness? So the book, because I was, again, a wellness industry reporter, that was partially part of the lens, again, because I had insight into all of these companies and I interviewed all of their founders. And so a big part of this book, but not all of it, the majority of the book is really trying to explain or investigate why women became so consumed with wellness. What is wrong in the American culture right now? What is missing that is pushing us to that? And then secondly, how this industry takes advantage of that. You know, I talk a lot about in the book that the marketing is just too good. Yes. It's too clever. Yes. It preys on our deepest desires and vulnerabilities, and they twist and cherry pick science. But also, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's in every woman's magazine. It's on podcasts. It's your influencers. It's everyone repeating the same things over and over again. And so I wrote this book because I thought, well, I'm not an idiot, right? And my friends aren't all idiots. How are we all falling for this? What is going on? How are they twisting the language? How are they getting at us? How can we protect ourselves as consumers? And also, what do we really want? What is real wellness versus the bunk that is being sold to us and making us work so hard or in some ways making us unhealthier and harming us? So that is really kind of the mix of the book. And I wanted a book that spoke to my experience as someone who felt very educated, who thought that they were a smart consumer. And I want to reassure people it's not your fault. Like, again, like you said, if you're not an expert in a field, how would you know this? And again, when every woman's outlet is telling you the same exact thing, when every morning show is repeating the same exact thing, how would you know any better? And I had to wait until I got called up by scientists on social media. That's how I found out that some of my reporting was subpar. That's what it took. And a lot of my work now is just trying to figure out how the industry, including the media industry, can be smarter about how they portray the science to the average reader. Well, I'm actually so thankful for what you do in the media. I was so thankful you interviewed me actually for that LA Times article about this exact kind of topic. And I'm so appreciative of journalists who are, instead of just going with the popular new wellness overhyped, you know, nonsense, that they're actually digging deep and they're discussing science communication and what wellness is with physicians and scientists. And I'm so appreciative that you brought light to this because like you said, it is, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's whether it's on social media, whether it's on our TV shows, there is just so much confusion. And you and I had talked about this before we started recording. And I think that one thing we both really share in common, and I'd love for you to share your take is that especially for women, how there's so many reasons why 
women in general have fallen for more wellness fads and why we get more duped. And you and I were talking about how in general, you know, it's never, I always say this and you reiterate it, it's never the patient's fault. And I've fallen for wellness trends too, even though I'm a doctor and it's never the person, if you're listening right now and you've fallen for wellness trends, it's never your fault. But we do have to recognize as physicians that our healthcare system has plenty of fractured issues in it that does push women listening into the wellness space. And so I was hoping you could give your take on that. Yeah, I have two chapters in the book that deal with women's experiences with the medical establishment and their doctors. And this is in no way me saying that I don't appreciate modern medicine or doctors. I'm very clear that I don't think the system is perfectly set up to even let doctors thrive. But a lot of women feel gaslit or um, unheard or ignored by their doctor. Um, or sometimes they just don't find solutions in their doctor's office um, because the science hasn't caught up to whatever chronic condition they have. There's nothing for them to do. And out of desperation, we'll try something else. Even sometimes knowing this may not work, but I'll try just about anything. And a lot of the women I spoke to were interested in alternative healers. Many of them said the number one reason was just time. They got an hour with a person. They wanted to feel heard. They wanted that reassurance. I think that's really, really appealing. And I think it's a legitimate complaint that we have with medicine. They don't get enough time Absolutely. with your doctor. I make a joke in the book that, you know, I've had five gynecologists over the last decade. I can't remember any of their names, but I know the favorite musical artists and favorite foods of all of my hairstylists. And I think that's a real <laughs> right. problem. There's something wrong with medicine if people are going over to the goops of the world. Now, just because there are issues with medicine doesn't mean alternative medicine has the answers. But there is a lot to be improved upon. And I think sometimes a lot of these companies, supplements, functional medicine clinics will prey upon those deep desires of women. Um, I know there was a functional clinic here in L.A. that had a billboard that says you deserve a better doctor. Yeah, I mean, what woman isn't going to identify with that billboard? You know, like Absolutely. they're just better. They're just better at marketing. They also have more time for marketing a lot of these influencers than the average doctor does. So these are sort of the problems that are creeping in. And again, I don't blame anyone for falling for this stuff because a lot of women are in pain. A lot of women need to be heard. And I have another chapter that just deals with the fact that the reason why so many people feel dissatisfied with their doctors, especially as it pertains to chronic conditions, is because women's health is underfunded and under-researched. Doctors simply don't have the answers for some of these issues, and they may not ever have the answers for them. And that's something that's hard to sit with. A lot of these influencers offer assurance. Oh, I have the cure. I have the answer. Well, of course, that's more appealing than your doctor who says, well, there's a 20% shot. This might work. I mean, come on. It's not really a fair competition here. So that's why you don't see doctors being gurus, because gurus gather the masses with assurance. That is a really great point. And the thing is, is that so many points you made are so important that we've talked a lot about on my podcast, you know, that I think that we have to, in traditional medicine, we have to accept some level of responsibility for the drive to alternative medicine. You know, the patients wouldn't be going there looking for it if they were satisfied with the care they were getting. And 
just like you said, it's not necessarily the physician's fault. In some cases, it may be the physician's fault. Right, of course. Um, but it's not necessarily the physician's fault. Sometimes it's the way the system is built. Sometimes it's the hospital system you work for. Sometimes it's just the structure of medicine. But we do have to, at the very least, acknowledge that we are a part of this process. So yes, they have amazing marketing and things like Parsley Health and all these other functional medicine clinics. They really have great marketing and great outreach, and they seem really able to lure people in using non-evidence-based recommendations that seem like a solution to everything. Um, and in reality, for patients that aren't feeling heard or listened to by their physician or not getting enough time, you know, that can be of course, understandably so, an alternative solution. And so I do think I agree with you. I think that us recognizing as physicians and us in healthcare that we're, we're part of the issue is a step to just figuring out how we can fix it. One suggestion I usually I give my listeners is that as a patient, you are a consumer of your healthcare and you have autonomy and you are the boss of your health. And if you meet a primary care doctor or whether it's a nurse practitioner or a PA or whatever, whoever is taking care of you, that you don't feel is listening to you, that you don't feel is giving you the time you need and you don't feel is able to really connect with you and make you feel heard, get a second opinion, see another physician. And another kind of easy tip that I recommend too is that in the real world, especially in primary care, I shout out to everyone here who practices primary care that's listening. It's the hardest job in the world. As a cardiologist, when I think of how much the PCPs I send my patients to do, I am overwhelmed for them. But, you know, I think as a patient, it's also important to recognize that they're trying to deal with a zillion things in a 10-minute visit. And so as a patient, I think it's also reasonable to say, you know what, I'm not going to be able to address all my problems today. Can I also make a follow-up with you next week to go over X, Y, and Z? And I think more than often than not, physicians would be so happy for that. And so I think as patients, just it's important to just advocate to find someone that that works for you. There's a great book that I read that I reference in my book uh, called What Doctors Feel by Dr. Danielle Ofri. And she really speaks about the fact that, you know, doctors aren't happy with the way things are set up either. And a lot of times they are working on your case. They're doing the paperwork. They're doing a whole bunch of stuff behind the scenes that the patient doesn't see. And the patient rightfully feels shortchanged because they're in there for what? 16 minutes is the average. Seven minutes is a time when they get interrupted by a doctor. Totally. So the patient feels like they're not getting anything out of this, but that's not necessarily true. So the whole system doesn't really kind of work right now. So I had a, a lot of empathy for, for both sides. You know, I think a lot of times we like to find one clear villain or yes. right now, nothing is nuanced anymore. Everything is good or bad. It's so just true. not true. It's so complicated within medicine. And the more I learned about it, the more I was like, wow, this is <laughs> this is very tough. And I, I, I don't envy anyone who has to deal with all of these issues. Well, it's pretty unbelievable that you've been able to, as a journalist, track these wellness trends like over time, because I don't know, is this just you would know better than me? So my impression is that it just feels like with the increase in social media presence in general, that wellness trends, it just feels more in our face like they boomed. Do you think that wellness in general and a lot of this pseudoscience and, and stuff like that has increased over time? Or do you think that it's just more on the forefront because of social media? What do you think about how it's how it's changed? Well, definitely social media had a hand in it. 
because it was so ubiquitous and because most of the influencers you saw, at least up until recently, were not evidence-based and they weren't doctors. Doctors are very busy. They don't have hours right. to spend on social media or making a beautiful acai bowl yes. to present <laughs> to, their, to their followers. And, you know, I also make the case that, you know, if you talk about 20, 30 years ago, if there was some diet guru who wrote a book about their diet fad, it really waited until you had time to read it, right? It waited till you had like 10 minutes before bed and you'd read it. It's a different game now. You have these influencers who are posting several times a day, reaching their followers every few hours, and you can interact with them. You can DM with them. You can't do that with your doctor. Right. So obviously, they're much more powerful. Um, but that's not the only reason why wellness has really ballooned into the industry that it is. Again, there are legitimate complaints within this country. And if you to believe the polls, women are more stressed than men. They're subject to the double shift. Uh, they work and they take on more of the housework. Right. Um, and then there's just a thing that affects both sexes, like addictive tech features, the politics, the news. I mean, everything feels like it's become too much for the average person. And so they're looking for solutions. And especially when wellness, again, when we're talking about wellness, we're talking about like over a dozen different subsectors. It's a very ambiguous term. So there are a bunch of stuff that's called wellness that I don't necessarily consider wellness. You know, diet culture seeped into wellness, you know, clean eating. I don't think that's wellness, but that kind of got shoved into there. And so when women are more affected by things like body pressures, the pressure to be thin, the pressure to look young, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that really, really was affecting women, but also targeting women. You know, I love to see a man who's terrified of their deodorant. Why is it always women? So true. Why, why are women freaking out about organic, but not as much men? There is a reason for that. And it's partially because women interact more with the medical industry. They're in charge of families' lives, but they're also targeted more. One of the most fascinating conversations that I had in the book was with Erin of Food Science Babe. Are you familiar with her work? Erin is amazing. She is on She's my amazing. podcast. She's oh, on amazing. my podcast. And she is a phenomenal resource. If you guys haven't listened to Erin's episode about organic versus uh, conventional produce, you have to listen. But yes, she's amazing. She's amazing. And I had a conversation with her about some of these organic snack brands in which the scientists, the food scientists working within these companies were butting heads with marketing teams in the sense that the scientists were saying, you can't fear monger like this. You can't terrify the consumer that if they don't eat X, Y, Z, you know, basically like they're going to get sick or their kids are going to get sick. And the marketing team say, well, this is what sells and that's what we're going with. And she's not the only one I've heard that from. I've heard that from a lot of people who work within the clean beauty or beauty spaces right. where eventually the marketing team just gives in because fear works. You terrify people about certain ingredients and they will buy your thing because fear is, you know, we remember negative much more than remember the positive. It's the same reason why politicians run negative ads. You're going to remember something bad. The good, not so much. So if you can terrify someone over an ingredient, they'll pay attention and they might be inspired to buy your product. It's really interesting. And, you know, it's something that every healthcare provider who's listening to this definitely experiences with patients every day. You know, you may have a patient for me personally as a cardiologist, I may have a patient who comes to see me who has the greatest fear of a medication like a statin. They've heard the most horrendous things about it and they are incredibly scared to take it, which I do not blame them by any means. There's lots of misinformation out there. And 
then I'll find out that they're on, you know, various supplements to reduce their cholesterol instead of a statin, and they're not scared of those. And a lot of times it's because the influencer that is recommending the supplements or they're seeing a healthcare provider who is not evidence-based, a pseudoscience, functional medicine provider, et cetera, they're spreading that fear about a guideline-directed, safe and efficacious medication like a statin, which we have randomized controlled trials for that we know are super safe and effective for patients with coronary disease and for patients with significant hyperlipidemia. And instead of, you know, talking about all the safety data and the randomized controlled trials, you know, they, of course, as you mentioned, cherry pick and then use that to scare patients away from these guideline-directed medical therapies and onto supplements, which can be super dangerous. And I know you have lots of thoughts on supplements. I'd love for you to mm. share because I do too. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that I used to write articles vouching for them. Wow. Um, I, so <laughs> trust me, uh, part of this book is a real media mea culpa. Good for you. When it comes to supplements, because a lot of my book deals into the psychology of why we fall for wellness or what is wrong in America right now that's getting people interested in some of these more harmful wellness trends. And, you know, what I found is that buying a quick fix is really appealing. Americans love a quick fix, especially one they can buy. You know, even just the act of putting a product or a supplement in your shopping cart feels good. You feel like you've, uh, you have that boost of self-efficacy, like you've taken that first step towards solving the problem. The obvious danger, however, is that we might fall for a solution that is easy and simple versus taking the time and effort to analyze the situation, which is probably more complex than you would think. You know, we're a very optimistic nation. We want to believe in good things. We can get to later about how much this industry is based upon belief and psychology. You want to believe in whatever it is that you're being sold. And I think that once consumers realize that, they might pause a bit. You almost can't blame consumers because the average American is so stressed that they don't have the time to think through the issues. Yes. And when you don't feel like you have institutional support, as many do, then you feel like it's upon yourself to take care of everything. And well, who has the time to deal with actual big lifestyle changes like eating right or moving or addressing the big systemic issues making us feel so unwell or so lonely or so stressed in the first place, right? It's much easier to just buy something. The other reason why I think supplements are so popular, as one physician told me, is that Americans have been impacted by the introduction of the antibiotic. We generally think of acute infectious diseases in which there's this one thing that causes a disease and you take an antibiotic and poof, it all goes away. And that's kind of the gold standard, you know, the simple cause and effect paradigm. But that's actually the exception, not the rule in many cases, especially when it comes to chronic conditions. And so this idea of like a magic pill for everything, I think that's kind of seeped into our culture. And as you are probably likely aware, unfortunately, taking a supplement can sometimes have the opposite effect. It makes people feel more proactive about their health than they actually are. It's a psychological effect called illusory invulnerability. Um, so for example, in one study, those who took supplements were more likely to neglect activities like exercising or eating a balanced meal because they thought, oh, I took a pill. I'm fine. I'm already taking care of my health. You know, taking a magic pill gave them license to, quote unquote, slack off. 
You know, I find that one of the big reasons that I find some patients uh, gravitate towards supplements, I, I really resonated thinking through my patients about what you mentioned about fear. I think that's a huge reason is that there's a lot of fear about traditional healthcare and pharmaceutical companies, et cetera. And some of which, of course, is valid. But I, as a physician, I've grown up in the post-Sunshine Act era where we have zero interaction with pharma. I've taken zero dollars from pharma as a, as a cardiologist. But, you know, there is some, of course, historical distrust there. And then I think that the purveyors of the pseudoscience, you know, like you mentioned, they just they capitalize on the distrust and then they use that to sell their alternative sort of, you know, treatment. And the other, the, the thing I see, I think maybe because geographically where I'm located to a lot is this, the naturalistic fallacy. I see a lot of people who think because it's natural, mm. it's better than a medication that is, you know, studied in a randomized controlled trial that is super found to be super safe and effective. So that's something we tried to explain as well. But, you know, it is super complicated because everyone listening is like, wow, I just want to, you know, be healthy. And I'm curious what your thoughts of, so as a journalist who's been following this for so long, what your thoughts are about this rise in celebrities as health gurus. I find it unbelievably fascinating and incredibly frustrating. All of these celebrities with zero experience in healthcare, with zero credentials, who come out with supplement lines or who come out with, I mean, Goop is a great example. Gwyneth Paltrow has given some really, really, really inaccurate and dangerous advice, even about sunscreen and things that you would expect to be hearing from a medical provider, but now we have just all of this marketing. Every celebrity you can think of has either a skincare line or a supplement line. And I'm just so curious, what you, what's your thought of celebrities taking over as a health influencers? Just yesterday, I saw this one study that found that one in five Americans trust health influencers more than medical professionals. It's wild. Um, and that uh, nearly 50% consult their doctor after seeing a prescription drug ad. But that percentage jumps to 70% with a celebrity endorsement. Wow. And I think it's partially because we just trust the people we already know or whom we aspire to. With Gwyneth, it's very obvious. We want to consume whatever she consumes because we presume that whatever she consumes on the inside mm. will help us look like what she looks like on the outside, even though I assure you, Gwyneth is who she is because of her genetics, okay? Right, right. <laughs> it doesn't matter what I consume. Um, and this is the other part of the wellness industry because it's not just the fear-mongering. Again, a lot of this is psychology. A lot of these trends are tied to our aspirational selves or hopes for the future. We want to believe in it. So much, again, of this industry is rooted in belief. So, you know, this supplement, this tool, this fitness class, this diet, they all dangle this hope for a future that you'll feel or be better or be prettier, whatever it is that you want. Uh, and we take that leap, even though we don't know enough about the science or there's paltry evidence, because we want it so badly. That makes so much sense. And it actually really does the psychology of it as you're discussing it, it just makes so much sense and falls into why, you know, in a society where we're all overly stressed, overly worked, and why, you know, everyone is just trying to get through the day, why we may be more susceptible to looking towards aspirational, more inspiring solutions to things that may not be evidence-based. And 
you do discuss in your book about the wellness mania that's exhibited here in the U.S. isn't necessarily replicated in other countries. And so would you be able to touch on that? Is this just a U.S. trend or is it worldwide or why do we see a discrepancy? Well, wellness is obviously a worldwide trend. I'm not going to make the case that people aren't doing yoga in other countries or buying organic in other countries. But the mania is very, very hyper-American. We're seeing that more in America. There's one part in the book where I'm discussing the American wellness phenomenon with an Italian researcher, and he just starts laughing and says, yeah, we don't really have this in Italy, all this buying of athleisure wear and the supplements, this and that. He's like, we get two-hour lunches. We have a good medical system. We get six weeks mandated vacation. You guys in America need the wellness, not us. And, I, wow. you know, that's obviously an exaggeration, a simplification of the problem. But there is something about America that's essentially propped us up for this. And it's because we're hyper-individualistic, uh, hyper-consumerist. We're overly optimistic. We are an optimistic nation, which is why we might fall for a supplement uh, more than other uh, groups that are potentially more skeptical of what they're being sold. So there are certain attributes, which I go through within the book, that really primed us for this type of mania. That isn't to say that you don't see other countries that are also buying athleisure wear, just that it's a little more heightened here with American women. That's really just such an important point that so much of the psychology of what is going on is also based on what our lifestyle is like here, which we know is different than it is elsewhere in the world. People are working more hours and taking less vacations and trying to take care of their families. And there's just kind of this never-ending stream of just multitude of factors that add into the stress that can make wellness so appealing. And so, yeah. And even just the loneliness factor. Yeah. That was one of the biggest themes throughout the book and just in my research of how alone the average woman feels. Yes, they have friends, but they don't have time to see them. They would love to have them over for dinner. They're too exhausted. When I hear women say like, oh, I'm so excited. My friend canceled. It's not because they don't want to see their friends. It's because they're so tired. You even have, for example, the wellness industry come in and say, here, we've solved your relationship with uh, loneliness. Come to our boutique gym. Even though, you know, and I go into the book, that's not necessarily always a real community and there's drawbacks on depending on those models. But when you feel this alone, and I'm not just talking about not seeing your friends or not having community support, but institutionally alone. You feel like it's on your shoulders to deal with your kids, not enough childcare policies, little maternal support. Then you really feel like you have to kind of Frankenstein all these solutions together. And when you're that stressed and you're that alone with it, then obviously you're not going to go for all of the evidence-based solutions. You're going to fall for some fads and some scams every now and then because it's all on you. You know, when you, you had already mentioned that some of these scientists that had kind of brought attention to you on on social media with some of your reporting that changed your narrative. Was there any other big kind of breaking point or event or thing that happened that made you realize that all these rituals and products, they weren't helping you as much as you, you wanted to believe? Yeah, I give a bunch of examples. But in terms of just actual scientists who helped me, I remember that early on when I was researching this book, I wanted to do a chapter on clean beauty and go into it. And I just remember calling all of these cosmetic scientists and toxicologists and being like, 
yep, the local Walgreens is oozing slime, right? We're all in danger. And they're like, no. <laughs> and they were all kind of refuting Clean Beauty's claims. And it was like something out of a movie where I'd call someone and he'd be like, yeah, Clean Beauty's mostly marketing. And I'd be like, I didn't like what I heard, so I'd you know, hang up and call another one. And like by the 10th one, I was like, okay, I need to reevaluate uh, what I've been writing because you know I was helping give press to all of these clean beauty companies. And it was really, really humbling. Now, I see two reactions to what I just went through. When I learned that I had been wrong and that I could take it easy and maybe not freak out every time I went to a hotel and I didn't have quote unquote clean products, I was relieved. One less thing that I have to worry about, you know? And that's not saying that there aren't issues within our consumer products. I'm just saying the way it's been messaged to the consumer is not necessarily factual. But then there's another type of reaction, which I see a lot, which is that people get so offended. They take it as a personal attack. And I think it's because they've over-identified with some of these trends. You know, these are not just trends anymore. They have come to mean certain values like purity or with organic food, it comes to mean good parenting. We put so much of ourselves, we over-identify with these trends so that when someone comes and refutes them, it's an attack on the way you live your life. This is so relatable. When I had first shared on my social media about patients being able to eat organic versus conventional produce, and so far, you know, the heart outcome data doesn't show any difference in health outcomes, um, I was expecting everyone in my social media following to be like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. We're going to save so much money now because that's how I felt. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to save so much money. This is great because organic was definitely something I believed because I never looked into it, you know? And mm -hmm. once I looked into the science, I was like, oh, okay, this makes sense. And so I was fully expecting everyone to be as pumped as I was to just be able to save so much money getting conventional produce and things like that. And exactly what you said happened. There was that entire other response. People super angry with me saying that you can eat conventional produce and that organic isn't superior. And that's just fascinating to hear you talk about the psychology on that because it does feel like there's something behind it that isn't, we're not talking to the science at this point. We're talking about something else. That's part of my point about the media's place within all of this. It's just repeated ad nauseum by every outlet, even top legacy outlets. And that's because it's not impressed upon reporters to investigate this. It's just taken as fact. And I know that because, listen, I worked at NBC News. I worked at The Today Show. I worked at Fast Company Magazine. I understand how these places work. Sometimes it's not reporters' fault. I think everyone knows now what's happened to the journalism industry. Um, we are given so much work to do without enough resources and time to investigate them. But also because... We treat wellness and health like fashion now. I mean, it's why you'll oftentimes find it in the style section, not in the health section, or women's magazine writing about yes. it and not checking, and not checking with one medical expert. And I've been guilty of this in the past as well. And so, of course, everyone's repeating that organic is superior because they never bothered to check with a dietitian or any of the people or any of the toxicologists doing these studies. Why would they? Why would they? Unless you're like me, who's getting called out by Timothy Caulfield. Oh, and is I now, as I say, like my one goal in life now is to just not be called out by him. That's like I all I want him. out of my career. <laughs> but he taught me a very valuable lesson, which is why didn't you check with an expert? Because I didn't have to. None of the other magazines did. Well, I love that you compare wellness to fashion. I mean, listen, when I started reporting on this, I mean, let's say in 2013, 2014, it was all about bone broth. 
right? Then it was coconut water. Then it was green juice. Then it was functional electrolytes. Then it was kombucha. Then it was CBD seltzer. Now it's psychedelic drinks. I mean, it just keeps going and going and going. And when you remind people of this, they're like, oh yeah, I remember when we were all into bone broth. And you have to say, yeah, you're treating it like fashion. It's not fashion. We're talking about health here. I mean, it's a lot like fad diets. You just keep roving from trend to trend because the trends don't work and then you move on. I mean, this is partially what I discussed, uh, what I wrote about in the LA Times article that I quoted you in, which is that women have a cabinet now filled to the brim with supplements and creams and powders that, you know, they tried it, didn't work. And they're like, okay, what's the next thing? And again, it's because we're highly optimistic. We just keep putting our faith in the next thing in the same way that people keep falling for fad diets. And behind this multi-billion dollar wellness industry is tons of money for marketing. Yes. And I mean, I say that it's so funny because all the people who, and I used to work, I used to write about fashion and beauty over 10 years ago, all the marketers and publicists who used to pitch me on fashion and beauty and alcohol now work for the wellness industry. And they've taken all those manipulative tactics and now just, you know, send me pitches on supplements, sell me pitches on clean snacks for kids. Because it's the new wellness du jour, they go where the money is. That's why in the book, I spend so much time going into the marketing, into the models, into what I hear from these founders. When I hear a founder of a functional elixir beverage tell me that he's basically using all of their advertising and uh, marketing model based off of what the alcohol industry did. Well, that's really telling, isn't it? You don't see doctors doing that. And that's why they're not winning this game. Well, unfortunately, we see some doctors. Some, <laughs> yes. Okay, okay, okay. Sure. If you're talking about Doctor Oz, but I'm, I meant more the average one. Yes, of course, of course, of Agreed. course. Agreed. <laughs> but no, I totally, I couldn't agree with you more. And actually, I think a perfect example is anyone listening to my podcast. You know, if you listen to some of the top five health podcasts, you listen to Andrew Huberman or just any of the other ones, they are advertising supplements that are not evidence-based, that have no scientific evidence uh, about their benefit. They're not recommended by major medical societies. And the reason why is I can only imagine, I would just guess, would be because there's so much money in them. And I know this because the reason why I signed with Podcast Nation, who I love, shout out to them, is because I wanted 100% control over any ads I did on my podcast. I refuse to advertise things about health that are false health claims. I just will not do it. And I take the same reason why I won't take supplement money is the same reason why I will not take money from pharma. I want to be an unbiased uh, physician. You know, we have something called the Sunshine Act where you can go and look up. I've talked about this on my podcast a bunch. So my listeners may be like, all right, we know, but you can you can go look up any physician in the United States, and you can look up and see how much money they've taken from a certain pharmaceutical company. And I actually, I don't have an issue with physicians taking money from pharma by any means. I think it's nuanced. I think that some of the best physicians consult with amazing pharmaceutical companies, and they create phenomenal drugs that save our patients' lives. But it's transparent. So you can look up any doctor you have. You can go look me up right now, and it's zero dollars. There is, exists nothing like that for supplements. So you have no idea how many gazillions of dollars that Mark Hyman, which we know he has on his website, that he sells detoxes and adrenal supplements and all these things that have no basis. There's no way to look up how much your favorite fitness influencer is getting from Athletic Greens or any of these other, you know, <laughs> which is nonsense. Coming. And so to me, the lack of transparency is so frustrating. And I get a lot of heat for calling people out by name specifically. But I'm sitting here being like, you know, I'm not, 
I'm not going to compromise my integrity. And when I see it harm my patients, which I see all the time with supplements, you know, that's someone's mom, that's someone's dad, that's someone's sister. And even if it's just the opportunity cost of falling into some wellness trend or taking some supplement and getting a delayed diagnosis or delayed guideline directed medical therapy, that's someone's family member. And I'm the only doctor in my family. So I think about how, well, if I wasn't around to help my family navigate healthcare, how would they? And it's not fair. Every patient deserves, you know, the best evidence-based things. And I think the marketing of this, even scientists and physicians who have podcasts that are marketing this nonsense, how can a consumer, you know, sort through it? There's so much noise. Yeah, I definitely think that there are ways you can arm yourself with critical thinking skills or just pause and and ask yourself who's benefiting from this purchase or, you know, or are they using emotionally manipulative language to stir an emotion? Why would they do that? I think there are ways that we can pause before we definitely drink the Kool-Aid. But I'm in the same boat. I I know I've been told I can't get booked for certain podcasts, especially women's podcasts or lifestyle podcasts, because they're all funded by, you know, supplement companies companies or athletic greens. Um, You know, I think a lot about um, I interviewed this one doctor named Dr. David Scales, who told me something that I thought was quite illuminating, which is that he found with his patients that wellness seekers tend to be uncertainty avoidant people. And It's one of the reasons that they're very interested in all these like, you know, tests like the food sensitivity tests and the supplements. They they think more data is better. The more supplements is better. They they hate the idea of uncertainty. And again, that's why I think it is a lot about marketing, because all these places tell you that they'll get rid of anything that you're afraid of. You know, again, that's why I'm saying it's not just about, you know, fear mongering. It's really getting into our deep vulnerabilities or, you know, or what we want out of the future or what we want ourselves to be. You can't blame the consumer when they fall for it. You know, I, I think when we again, when we feel strongly about our choices in an individual society, it's because we feel the pressure of each choice, you know, and when we are under stress, which, you know, I feel like most American women are, we're definitely more reactive. We just don't think through it. But I think there are a few tips you could keep in mind to just pause a little bit. And I go through them in in the book. Like I said, um, I think just being aware of who's benefiting from the sale. I think sometimes we forget that someone's getting paid at the end of the day. Yes. Also, just, I mean, I'm sure your listeners already know this, but who are you taking your health advice from? Is this someone whom the consensus of other experts in their field yes. look to? Or are they the oddball, like Dr. Oz? You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I think you've done such great work about explaining how we should look at the guidelines. Right. That that's a really great way to look at the consensus. But a lot of my book goes into li- the linguistics of this, of really being able to look at the words that marketing is using to decipher when you're being tricked into something or you're being preyed upon or they're trying to twist your emotions. So fascinating because I never even thought about those aspects of it, the the psychological aspect of the marketing and what goes into that. And that is like the crux here. I mean, that is how they're getting so many people. And it's fascinating. And the more you know, the better you're right, that we can all arm ourselves to kind of, you know, avoid it. Yeah. Or even just the messaging we get. You know, I take a lot of issue with some of these workplace wellness programs that are always pushing, you know, some sort of meditation program or nutrition program, this and that, but never saying, hey, maybe we won't email you after 6 p.m. 
or uh, or maybe we'll give you more time off. Or or my favorite, my absolute favorite is when they offer you wellness days off, but they don't adjust the workload. So you oh still have to gosh. work. But oh then they pat God. themselves on the back, like, look at us, like we care about work-life balance. And that's my issue overall with like the self-care discourse. It's all about like you have to take this bath or use this face mask or this and that. It's all about kind of treating the symptoms instead of the root causes of why you feel so stressed out. Maybe it's because you don't get help at home. Maybe it's because, again, your boss gives you too much work. But instead, we're telling everyone to sort of pacify themselves with, I don't know, some wellness app or something that they can buy. And it's like gaslighting women. If you think that you're stressed out because you're not doing enough yoga, you're kidding yourself. That's not the reason why. And so, so much of this messaging within this industry is so problematic, and I don't think people realize it. Well, I think that's a really important and valuable perspective because the messaging is real. I mean, it's so well-funded and so it's so sophisticated that you may not even realize you're being manipulated. And the majority of the time, we don't. And so I'm really fascinated by that. And I'm going to think twice now, you know, because the marketing is just, you're right. Someone's making money at the end of the day. And so it's really just an interesting perspective to just think and slow down when you're about to jump into a trend and just think yeah. through it more thoroughly. Yeah, I think if people saw some of the um, business plans for these workplace wellness programs mm. or, or some of these apps, they'd be shocked because they essentially come down to, are your employees stressed out? Do they not get enough sleep? We have an answer when they come to HR tell them to go do X, Y, Z, tell them to, uh, you know, take this nutrition course, to do this yoga class, to go meditate. Well, who benefits from that? Why is the onus on the individual always? And that's kind of like my root issue with the entire of this industry, which again, stems from such more radical, political, helpful roots in the 60s, but it's devolved into this hyper-individualist, hyper-consumerist thing that's all about what you yourself alone can buy or work your way out of. It's so infused with productivity pressures. And that's my point of how I think it's sometimes harming us more than helping us. That is obviously not an argument against proper fitness, nutrition, but that's real wellness. What we have right now, this industry, it's saturated with bunk or things you have to buy. And I make the case that some of these things are harming us more than helping us. Well, I have to tell you that one of the things I admire so much is that I, I can't speak enough to the fact that you are able to admit you were wrong about something before, and then you did a course correction, you learned from it, and you opened your mind, and you went into a different direction. And that's how I feel too. I feel like as a physician, if I wasn't open-minded to mistakes I've made with regards to my views on, whether it's nutrition science or something else, then you're really just not doing the best by your patients or by the people you're helping in general. And I think it's so honorable that you are able to speak from that experience. It shows that a lot of strength comes from being able to admit what we've gotten wrong. We learn from that. And I think it's valuable. And I think that it helps people to trust us more because we can say, hey, I've been there and hey, I've made mistakes too. And rather than just being, like you said, the all-knowing guru that knows everything. Yeah. And, and I wish more of media would admit when they mess up. 
it's kind of funny now. I do have a lot of outlets that want to speak to me now. And some of them were kind of the, you know, biggest offenders of spreading misinformation or, you know, propping up bunk. And they just kind of hope, I, I assume that nobody notices that they were doing that. And now just they see where the market is going, which is that I think a lot more consumers are waking up and realizing all the bunk that they're being sold and they don't want to work so hard on all of these crazy pressures. And so it's kind of like, you know, when all of these women's magazines embrace the body positivity movement and just hope you didn't realize that they spent the last two decades promoting overly thin models. Like, and I guess maybe I should just let it slide. But yeah, it hasn't been easy to admit as a journalist that you were wrong. But Sometimes journalists are wrong. And again, I, I, it's a lot more complicated than, you know, just people not wanting to do the work and to call up, you know, medical experts. A lot of it is just because, ex, you know, journalists aren't given the time or opportunity to do that. They have like 10 different jobs, right. they have no resources. It's really difficult right now. And throughout the book, I give examples of what I saw in media that was really, really troubling. Well, I'm so thankful for your presence in media. I'm so thankful for journalists like you for bringing attention to this. You you make our job as physicians so much easier by calling attention to this. And so I, I can't thank you enough. Well, what is, in your opinion, the wildest wellness trend that you've seen over time? What's the one that's been most bonkers to you? I've been very, very impressed by the sheer creativity around CBD. Oh, okay. there is there is everything from CBD butt bombs to CBD enemas to CBD toilet paper for uh, for a softer tushy. What? It's, the craze around CBD was so hilarious. Although I've been speaking to trend analysts now and they say that CBD is declining, I think partially because, you know, it was uh, exaggerated. It was way, way, way too too much in the press without enough scientific evidence. And again, a lot of people bought some stuff and it just didn't work. And so they're moving on. It's the same thing that happened to activated charcoal. Oh. This is the activated charcoal everywhere. And then it went away. Again, that's why I'm saying it's fashion now. It's total fashion. And now the magazines are like, now it's all about chlorophyll. It'll just keep moving on and on and on. Oh my gosh. I did not know about CBD toilet paper. That actually is really hilarious. Um, well, where do you think we stand now? Do you think the industry is getting better or worse? Are consumers changing? What do you think the trajectory is of the wellness industry? I have some hope. I wrote a piece for The New York Times this summer about science-based influencers really having an impact on TikTok. Um, and again, it, they're up against an army of misinformation, but I do think they're having some effect. And I do think that the more awareness we have about why we need scientists online uh, and medical experts, the more we can get funding for them. So I'm hopeful on that end in terms of social media. And in just my research, I am seeing a fatigue. I am seeing more and more women. Again, it's not all age groups. I don't want to lump everyone in together. But we're seeing especially Gen Z and certain millennials say, I shouldn't have to work so hard on my health. Why am I fetishizing my health? And maybe I don't need to like track my sleep and then be nervous if the, you know, the machine tells me I didn't get enough sleep. And maybe I, you know, I can relax. Maybe I won't drop dead if I have an Oreo. But this always happens. The pendulum always swings the other way. And so what you're seeing now is the fatigue. And I think it's partially because coming out of the pandemic, there was such an emphasis on misinformation in health. 
Um, and also people realized what they could live without. They didn't have their green juice bar. They didn't have their fancy boutique classes or the retreats. They didn't get to go on Sephora shopping sprees as much. And so they kind of realized like, hey, maybe I don't need all that stuff. And I actually have a piece coming out in the LA Times next week about how even self-care is changing. And um, without going too into depth, we're seeing much more an emphasis on social support, which I've always said is one of the biggest pillars of real wellness. Yes. That gets no attention, probably because you can't direct someone to an app to download yes. their friends. But uh, the loneliness epidemic is one of the major issues. And again, I hate the fact that we're all told that me alone with my credit card are the answer to our health issues. So I, I, I am I'm hopeful. I'm a little bit hopeful. But again, my entire book goes into the history of quacks uh, in American history. We're always going to have the goops of the world. They are always going to be here. But I think the industry is getting a little bit better, just a little bit. And at least the consumers, listen, they can only exist with the consumers that will buy their things. And we are arming everyone to find a way to be able to avoid this kind of pseudoscience. And I think we're all getting better at it. Um, every day. And thanks to you for bringing light to it and all of you do with all of your journalism and work and your amazing book. So tell everyone again, remind them again, your book, where can they get it and where can they find you on social media? Yes, it's called The Gospel of Wellness and you can get it wherever books are sold. So uh, whether that's Amazon, your local bookshop, uh, Barnes and Noble. Online, I'm mostly on Twitter. Uh, it's three R's, I-N-S, Reens. And um, yeah, and I write a lot for the LA Times, also for the New York times. And I have a newsletter called Well To Do, uh, where one to two times a month, I go into wellness trends and news and how I think the industry is shifting. I cannot thank you enough for being a journalist who is doing such important work. Literally, I'm just, just so thankful you exist. And thank you. And I hope everyone listening grabs your book and enjoys it. And especially learning about the history of this, because it's quite an interesting space. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness bag you'd like debunk next, and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction, and be sure to tune in next week.